Be perfect, everybody. Got that? Anything short of perfection and you're out. <laughs> it's a pretty tall order, perfection. Garrison Keeler, I was listening to a Prairie Home Companion yesterday, and he pointed out that Jesus was preaching this sermon on a mount and that um, many of us, at least here in Houston, we are on a pretty flat area, so it might not be quite as immediately applicable as it was to Jesus' listeners. But um, in, a, in a serious way, when he says, be perfect, I doubt that Jesus was saying, be forever without fault or, de or defect of any kind whatsoever. He didn't actually give an absolute command, be perfect. He rather said, you will be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And the word we translate as perfect also means whole and complete. So be whole people, be complete people, and in that way be perfect as your heavenly Father is whole and complete and perfect. We tend to love trying to measure up to the sinless life of Jesus and castigating ourselves for not measuring up. I know I'm never going to be perfect, but there's some refrain I hear quite often. But that's not the point of this passage, to get some in incredibly high bar in our lives to which we can never measure up and then spend the rest of our lives feeling badly for falling short. Notice that everything leading up to this passage about this statement of perfection or wholeness was a teaching about how to love others. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Okay, that's a tough thing to do. So you just want people to slap me around. Thanks so much, Jesus. I don't think that Jesus was telling us to sit idly by while someone beats us to a bloody pulp. And I don't believe Jesus is telling us or telling people who are in abusive relationships to just sit and tough it out and remain in an abusive relationship. I don't think that's what he was saying. Jesus is not telling us to ignore injustice or violence or sit idly by while others are being hurt. Jesus wants us to stand up for the victims of fear and injustice and oppression. He's simply commanding us to do so in love. In the example he gives, Jesus is telling us to end a violent interaction before it really gets going. So rather than fighting back when someone strikes you on the cheek, in which case both people would probably be very greatly physically harmed, one likely more than the other, take a bruised cheek and maybe take another bruised cheek and see if that will end the confrontation. We're not talking about letting someone continually knock your teeth out until they're satisfied. The image Jesus gives is one of a person who is full of peace and love, such that being struck on the cheek doesn't incite that person to a response. Such a heart doesn't seek vengeance. Such a heart doesn't return evil for evil. Such a heart sees with compassion, even towards one's enemies. A heart full of peace and love is a heart that is whole, a heart that is deeply rooted in God. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who faced terrible violence in South Africa, said of his ministry, I wouldn't have survived without fairly substantial chunks of quiet and meditation. The demands that are made on one almost always seems to be beyond one's natural capacities. There would be many times when the problems, the crises we were facing, seemed about to overwhelm us. 
There's no way in which you could have confronted these in your own strength. Margaret Benefiel describes Archbishop Tutu in her book, The Soul of a Leader, and gives an example of Archbishop Tutu interrupting a cycle of violence. There was an occasion in 1990 when security forces killed 38 people in Sebokang, a black township of South Africa. And when word of the massacre reached Archbishop Tutu, he was in a meeting with his synod of bishops, and he left that meeting to cry and pray in the chapel, and then feeling directed by God, returned to the bishops, and he urged them to suspend the meeting, which had never happened before, and go to Sibokang. All of the bishops unanimously agreed, and the next morning they left. And when they arrived, they celebrated Eucharist at a local church, and then visited the injured and the bereaved. And soon thereafter, a convoy of armored police vehicles with tear gas and machine guns drove up. And John Cleary, an Australian Broadcasting Corporation uh, journalist, was there and reported the following. I heard the Archbishop say, let us pray. Then the noise of the vehicles stopped. The crowd went quiet. There was no sound from the armored vehicles. There was no sound of tear gas canisters. So I looked around, and there behind me were the Anglican bishops of South Africa. Black, white, colored, old, young, standing between the crowd and these armored vehicles with their arms outstretched. In that moment, I understood a little about what the Christian vision for a new South Africa cost people. I'd never witnessed that kind of courage before. Archbishop Tutu and his fellow bishops, their hearts full of peace and love, deeply rooted in God, met violence with prayer and ended the cycle of violence. Look again at what Jesus preached to his disciples. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I doubt Archbishop Tutu had the most warm and fuzzy feelings of love for the men who had killed the people of Sibokang. But he had enough love for them to give them prayer rather than violence in response to their violence. There's no way he could have done this if his heart was full of hatred. He had every right to be hateful towards these men, his enemies, but having hatred for them would not have brought about a peaceful resolution. Rather than being full of hate, Archbishop Tutu and his fellow bishops were made whole, complete, perfect. Jesus was right in telling us not to hate our enemies because we can't deal with hate. Nowhere does Scripture tell us to hate our enemies. Now, plenty of times it says that God hates the enemies of Israel and that God hates the enemies of justice and mercy. And so perhaps people extrapolated from those verses that since God hates our enemies and God hates injustice and violence, that we should hate them too. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The problem we find is that when we hate, love is driven from us. When we hate, even justifiably, we are diminished. We become less of who we are, and hatred takes over and fills the places that once were us. How can God, then, hate evil and those who do evil and still be whole, complete, perfect, holy? Well, presumably God can do whatever God does. 
even saying God hates these things, however, may be to ascribe to human equality or a character to God. God is. And in the way of life given by God, given to us by God, we find something of what God is. The Israelites were told in Leviticus to be holy, for God is holy. And then a way of life was described in order for the people to be holy. This way of life included honoring one's parents, keeping God's Sabbaths, leaving some of one's crop for the poor, being honest in words and actions, not stealing, making sure workers had enough wages for their daily living, looking out for the disabled, seeking justice, not hating one's family, not taking vengeance, and loving one's neighbor. We see in commanding this way of life not only a beautiful way of life for us to live, we also catch a glimpse of the nature of God. God desires for us love, peace, honor, care for others, justice, reconciliation. And so evil, injustice, malice, Heartlessness, ruthlessness, these things would then be anathema to God. So we'd say God hates these things. God can. God can hate the things that are anathema to God, and God can do so without being destroyed. God remains whole, complete, perfect in love. We cannot, and we do not. When we hate, our love, ourselves, are destroyed. How then can we remain perfect and whole, complete, in peace and love without hate when confronted with our enemies? Jesus tells us to do so by praying. As Archbishop Tutu demonstrated. One of my professors also, Bishop Mark Dyer, told us of a practice that he has praying uh, every morning with his calendar. He takes out the calendar in the morning and prays for whatever meeting he's going to have. And for every person he knows he's going to encounter throughout that day. He prays for the, the, the people whom he's looking forward to seeing and he prays for those who, as he puts it, get his Irish up. I think we've all got folks who drive us a little bit nuts sometimes. Pray for <laughs> Exactly. I'll bet on that one. We pray for them too. We pray for our friends and our family. And we pray for the annoying ones. We pray for the ones we hold as enemies. And we pray for a heart that is full of peace and love that is deeply rooted in God. Such prayers and such hearts and the actions that accompany them will help fill us with God's presence and love and make us whole and complete, perfect, even as God is perfect. Amen.